Well, last Sunday morning, we began our summer trek through the book of Romans. And of course, we started in the back of the book. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Romans 16. We began at the end because we're doing Romans backwards. The goal is to understand the social reality within Rome so that we have some context for all that theology in Romans 1 through 11. So we're starting in chapter 16. We're going to move to 14 and 15 next week and then to 12 and 13 and then who knows, I guess we might go to 1-1. What I hope to discover is this. How would the church in Rome have responded to this letter as it was read for the, to them for the first time? Probably by Phoebe, the friend of Paul, the, the wealthy woman who brought the letter fresh from his pen. And by setting the context for this book, I hope that we are able to see it with fresh eyes. I hope that we're able to see what Paul was really doing and, and the eyes of, of the first century reader living in Rome about 57, 58 AD. So last week we explored chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. We looked at uh, this lady, this woman, Phoebe, who seems to be the most important figure in the book because it seems that she brings this letter to the churches in Rome. She's a sister, she's a deacon, she's a benefactor, she's a courier. And so this morning I, wanna, I want us to explore the rest, not all of chapter 16, but down through like verse 16, so that we can see what, what, what the church is like, because Paul brings all of these greetings to the people who are living in Rome. Historians and archaeologists tell us that Rome, at this point in history, was a jumble of homes a jumble of, of little small roads and alleyways. You could find in these roads a variety of people, merchants, wealthy people, politicians, people seeking power, immigrants, slaves who had come there from their military conquests of the empire. In a lot of ways, it is much like, I think, our city of Washington, D.C. It's a city all about who you know and who you can attach yourself to to climb the ladder of success. It's all about power and prestige. So what does Phoebe find as she arrives at the capital of the empire? As she arrives, we get to learn something about Paul, we learn something about the church in Rome, and then we learn something about ourselves. So let's plow through this. We learn something first about Paul. You have in Romans 16 a list of greetings. And so, as you look at this greeting, you say, what do I learn about Paul? But if I were to ask you what words you would use to describe the Apostle Paul, what would they be? You might sing, say things like serious, brilliant, logical, reverent, studious, I don't know, thoughtful, dedicated, driven, committed, no-nonsense, a, a, a high driver. I mean, all of those words fit the usual picture that we have from this man from Tarsus. And if you read his letters, he doesn't seem to be the kind of man you'd want to hang out with. You probably wouldn't invite him to go to a football game and enjoy the game together with him. You might not even invite him over for dinner, but if you did, you'd brush out on your Old Testament theology as you're setting the table. Because if he had a sense of humor, it seems to be rather well hidden. And you don't want to get into an argument with him. That's not a really good idea. 
But Romans 16 reveals to us, I think, a little bit of a different side of the Apostle Paul. Here in Romans 16, we discover he's got a heart for people. In this chapter, he mentions 33 people by name, including 24 people that are in the church at Rome. He mentions two others who live in Rome, but he doesn't mention them by name. And that's actually amazing when you realize that Paul has never been to the city of Rome. Never. Can you name 24 people in a city you've never been to? We've got telephones and email and even pretty good snail mail. But can we name 24 people in a city we've never even lived in or visited? And as we look over these names, we find Paul knew most of these people personally, which means he had met them on their missionary travels. Either he had led them to Christ, or he had worked with them, or he'd been in jail with them for the cause of Christ. But he loved them all, and so he kept track of them. He happened to know what they did and what their work was. You see, that's the heart of the Apostle Paul. He really does care about people, and they care about him. So don't just, this isn't just a list. These are people he knew and loved. Second thing, we learned something about the church in Rome. And we're starting with this chapter in our series of Romans so that we can learn something about that church. And what we find by looking at these names is a remarkable picture of the early church. Probably the most remarkable picture we get of that setting other than the one you get in the book of Acts with the early church in Jerusalem. So let's take a quick survey so we can understand this church. It's kind of a, a mini Invisibles series on steroids. We'll move quickly. So who do we meet and what do they teach us about the church in Rome? First, we meet Priscilla and Aquila. Romans 16, verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ. They risked their lives for me. But not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Of all of the people mentioned in Romans 16, you're probably most familiar with Aquila and Priscilla, or Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila is a Jew from Pontus who had settled in Rome. But he and his wife were forced to leave Rome when the emperor kicked all of the Jews out of Rome several years before this. Acts 18.2, there, Paul is right, or, you know, Luke is writing, they meet uh, Paul for the first time there in Corinth. He, Paul, met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. So they work together in Corinth. Paul goes to Ephesus. They, they travel with Paul to Ephesus. They work with Paul in Ephesus. Paul then leaves Ephesus and they stay behind. And so by the time Paul writes the book of Romans, they're back in Rome and they've got a group of believers meeting in their home. Interesting. Second person we meet, Epinetus. Uh, are the Thomases back? My, my Greek is not always. Are they here? I can say that the way I want to then. Epinetus, probably Epinetus, actually. It, verse 5, greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. You'll remember your first convert if you're Paul. He went to Asia. The first guy to trust Christ is this guy. 
Third, we meet Mary, verse 6. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. She's probably from Rome, and she worked hard for the church. She must have had the gift of helps. We don't know. She worked hard. Andronicus and Junius, verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. It says four things about them. They're Jewish, just like Paul. They'd been in prison with him. We're not sure when and where. Third, they were outstanding among the apostles. In other words, they had a great reputation. The apostles had heard of them, and they, and they had a good reputation. And fourth, they had followed Jesus before Paul had followed Jesus. They might have come to faith, you know, on the day of Pentecost or thereabout, where the thousands come, and, and before even Paul, they might have been followers of Jesus in Galilee or before the death and the resurrection. We don't know. But they came to Christ before Paul did. Verse, uh, uh, verse 8, Ampliatus, greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Ampliatus is a very common name for a slave. And what's interesting is that there's a cemetery called Domitia Cemetery in which the earliest Christians were buried. It's one of the catacombs in Rome. And in that catacomb, there is one very elaborate tomb, and it only has one name on it, Ampliatus. So since it only has one name, the assumption is this was a slave. Only slaves had one name. If you were not a slave, you had multiple names. But it's elaborate. So it seems like you've got here a slave that's important in the church. In other words, in the Roman church, there were no distinctions on slaves and free. And it may be possible, since Apliatus is associated with this cemetery in Domitio, who was a, was, a, was a woman of very high status in Rome, got this cemetery named after her, maybe that's how the faith started to spread. The slave came to Christ, and he lived an example, and he penetrated the highest levels and ranks of society in Rome. Verse 9 through 11, we meet these four guys, Urbanus, well, let's just read it. You can pronounce it in your head. Meet Urba greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Okay? Leave off Aristobulus and Herodian, and these are like four men of whom we know nothing else but this. He says of Urbanus, our co-worker, he doesn't say my co-worker, so he probably hadn't, actually hadn't worked face-to-face -face or hand-in-hand -hand with, with him, but who knows. Seventh, we see the households of Aristobulus and Narcissus. Verse 10, greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Verse 11 says, greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Now, he doesn't actually greet these two guys. He doesn't greet Narcissus. He doesn't greet Aristobulus personally. He only talks about their households, not them, which could mean that the church there did not meet in their homes, but maybe the tenements. They had small apartments on the upper floors of these, of these houses that were owned by wealthy people. He says, greet the household. What's a household? It's not just a man's in immediate family. It's, it's 
it's not just their close relations. It included the people who worked for them within their house. It included their slaves. It included everybody. Now, we do know that the grandson of Herod the Great, okay, you know, the, the baby killer? We met him in, Ma in early stages of Matthew. Herod the Great, his grandson lives in Rome, and his name is Aristobulus. So this greeting might be to the Jewish slaves who then worked in the household of Aristobulus. And it's more likely because it mentions who else? Herodian. Okay? Probably one of the, the, one of the slaves of, of Aristobulus. And so his name comes from Herod, so he might have been one of those leading slaves in that household. Narcissus, that's a name of a wealthy freedman who had been prominent in, in Claudius, under Claudius, Emperor Claudius. He had been put to death by the emperor or by, actually by Nero when he took the throne. And then it, what's interesting about his name is it's, it's here in, in Latin. It's not the original Greek, which would have spelled it a little differently. So you've got a Latin person, a Roman in this list. And there seems to be a significant number of believers in this household. Verse 12, we meet, it says, Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. The names kind of, you know, like go together, so they're thinking maybe they're sisters. We don't know. What, who would name, you know, whatever. We don't name. That's not a very popular name today. <laughs> Verse 12. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. It was present tense for the two if they were sisters. Now it's past tense, so that you probably have an older woman here whose energy is kind of faded and she's not able to do as much as she used to in the, in the past, but she was a dear friend of the apostle. Verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Now, you of course remember Rufus, right? We encountered him back in, in the ending days of Matthew. His name is actually mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. Rufus is the son of Simon the Cyrene, who carried the cross, all right? We don't know if it's the same Rufus, but, but we do know Mark was written to the church in Rome, and so mentioning Rufus would be, you know, he's kind of probably famous, his dad carried the cross. And so it seems to be that, that this would make him well-known in the church. And his mother then would be Simon's wife, and she cared for Paul like a mother. All of that because of a chance encounter between Simon and Jesus on the road to the cross. Verse 14, greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. See, the farther he goes, the less he has to say about these people. Some of you are saying, praise the Lord. <laughs> Maybe he knew less about them. Perhaps these five guys, the speculation is maybe they worked together. Maybe they, they'd been slaves of one man or had become freedmen together. This could just be a house church since the, the brothers and sisters mentioned meet with them. Verse 15, greet Philogos, nah, Philologos, Julia, Nereus, and his sister Olympus, and all the Lord's people who were with them. Now, we don't know much about these people at all. But there is an interesting story behind Nereus. You want a story? You're going to get a story. 
In AD 95, so some 30 years later, two of the most distinguished people in Rome had become believers, and they were condemned for that faith. They were a husband and wife, Flavius Clemens and Domitio. Remember the cemetery? Same lady. Flavius was executed, and Domitia is banished to the island of Pontia. And they spared her, they think, probably because of her royal blood. She was the granddaughter of Vespasian, and she is the niece of the current emperor Domitian at the time. And so the name of the couple's personal steward, here you go, is Narius. The personal steward take care of the money, the finances. And some speculate that it may be this Narius. And if so, he could be the very person through whom the gospel enters a very prominent Roman household. And they came to faith and they paid for it with their life. Well, he did. But that, that banishment and that martyrdom had to have shocked and troubled the city of Rome in 95, 96 AD. Nereus. So, step back from this enriching, inviting, what is the word? This list that's fascinating. <laughs> what do we learn about the church in Rome? What does this tell us? Well, it's obviously not a church that, that met, you know, saddleback style in a grand, huge place, and they all did what we just did this morning. And that's not what you got. It's clear that these believers, they gathered in small groups. A few of them met in larger homes. Aquila and Priscilla probably had a larger home. But others probably met in small apartments. They weren't all wealthy. The larger homes could hold maybe 40 people, they estimate. If you've been to Ephesus, think of that conglomeration of houses that you visit when you tour the city. That's what this is like. The smaller houses, you could probably get 10 in one of their rooms. Some of them might have been owned by, by business owners, you know, maybe those four guys, and they used their shop for a church. But how many of these house churches were there? Some argue that, that, that the list really signals that there are only five house churches in Rome. There are five households mentioned, which means five churches. Others argue every time the Paul uses the word greet, he's mentioning and signaling another house or a tenement apartment church. So you could have up to 15 who've received a greeting. So there are at least five of these small gatherings. There are up to 15 of these house churches in Rome. They're small communities of Christians, and they meet mostly in the poorer areas of the city. The largest of these churches would have, been, would have had room for probably 40, and maybe most around 10. If that's true, there might have been 100 believers in Rome. It's a, it's a population of a million. 100 believers, not very many. But if there were more churches, then some have speculated there could be up to about 1,000 believers on the high end. History says, seven years from the writing of Romans 16, um, what happens is Nero blames the, the Jewish believers, or the, he, bl he blames the Christians for the burning of Rome. And Tacitus says, I've lost my place. He reports that the condemnation of a huge crowd, he calls them, of Christians. They gathered them all together, and when they did that, there was a huge crowd. Huge crowd is probably not a hundred. 
but you've got seven years for them to do some evangelism. So somewhere in that number is, is the population of the believers in Rome. You get the strong impression that when Phoebe arrives, she's going to have to read this book to them a number of times, at least five, maybe upwards of 15. And she saw when she arrived a very diverse group of people. There were women, lots of them. There were slaves, former slaves. There were Jewish believers. There's Gentile believers. The jumble of the streets of Rome is mirrored in the jumble of the church. And by looking at the names, we discovered the most common language was, was Greek, mostly Greek names, followed by Aramaic or Hebrew names, and then a few Latin names. The leadership of the women is obvious, which is probably why Phoebe was sent. But diversity shaped every moment of the Roman house churches. But Paul sought for what? He's trying to create unity out of this great diversity. He was fostering a sibling relationship that in Christ transcended and also affirmed your, your, your nationality, your ethnicity. Paul never lost his Jewishness. He never said, I'm not a Jew anymore, I'm a Christian. He always maintained that Jewishness. But he celebrated the sibling relationship that rose above that Jewishness. So that every person in the house churches in Rome, they had formed an identity apart from Christ, but now they formed an identity in Christ. And life for the Christian in Rome was life in Christ. And they shared that with other people throughout the churches that Paul had planted throughout the empire. And now they, what they share is a sibling relationship with each other. They're all trying to become like Jesus make his life alive within them. But what about the internal dynamics of these churches? Who holds the power? Who's really leading these things? Probably the Gentiles. Why? Well, because not too many years before this, the Jews had all been expelled from the capital. Romans, or Acts 18 so without the Torah-honoring Jews holding their influence within the churches, I'm sure the church changed. And by the time the Jews return, Aquila and Priscilla, things are different. The church culture had changed. The Gentiles held the power, and the Jews did not. And that, I think, becomes a source of tension in the church. It's a reason for this letter they were strong. They were weak. How do they get along? That's next Sunday. That's what the church is like. It's this trying to get unity out of diversity. The third thing I want to talk about today is that we learn something about us. Put your toes under your chair because they're going to get stepped on. The passage ends with a command. Verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Ooh. All the churches of Christ send greetings. The holy kiss is mentioned five times in the New Testament. Paul does it four times. Peter does it once. But here in the climax of this letter, 
in the midst of their diversity and this jumble of churches, he says what? Greet one another with a holy kiss. We have several problems with this today. First, we don't really take it very seriously, obviously. Even if we say we believe that every verse in the Bible is true, it's God's word, we don't think this holy kiss really applies to us. And most of us probably put it in this category. Things they used to do back then and we don't have to do today. The holy kiss itself, not that important, right? The greeting is the thing we're told. It doesn't really matter how you do it. Back then it was a holy kiss. Today it's a handshake, same thing. And that seems right until you think about it. A kiss is not the same thing as a handshake. Ask any teenager. <laughs> In the Bible, the holy kiss is a sign of love and respect. It's a sign of, of friendship and honor. It's a mark of innocent affection. And as time passed in the early church, the holy kiss, it eventually became a regular part of the worship service. And they, they, they joined it together with, with the Lord's table, and they would do it as part of the order of service. Eventually, you know, the voices were raised about some possible, it could be abusive, you know? They're like, yeah, I guess it could be. And so by the fourth century, it was never spontaneous anymore. And finally, it disappeared, except as part of the formal liturgy. Go, liturgy. go to an Orthodox church, they will still practice the Holy Kiss. The early Christians felt that the Holy Kiss, it signified something innocent and something of affection. There was no hint of sensuality. There was no impropriety with it at all. It was part of the custom of Israel. You go back, all these, look at the Old Testament, they kissed a lot. It was a common cultural greeting in those days that the Christians adopted and gave it new meaning. It was a sign of their unity in Christ. And that's still true. In many cultures today, they kiss on the cheeks. But a handshake is different from a kiss. A handshake is safe and secure. You can kind of keep your distance with a handshake. A holy handshake, it might be good, but it ain't the same as a holy kiss. It simply doesn't mean the same thing. So here we are in the 21st century, and Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. When was the last time you gave a holy kiss or received a holy kiss? Let, let's hold on to that radical thought for just a moment and ask why the holy kiss was so important in the early church. Because I think that perspective will give us a new understanding of our Savior, even. In the first century, the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, Romans, they were like philosophic ideas. They were deities so far removed from man that you never even came close to them. They're like Aristotle's unmoved mover, kind of an abstract concept, not a personal God. And the Gnostics, they taught that Jesus, that, that God could never come in contact with human flesh. Too high, too holy, too pure. Not going to happen. And into that world comes who? Jesus, a tiny baby who feeds from his mother's breast. 
He's the touchable God. As he walks down the roads of Galilee, he touches the blind and they see. He touches the lame and they walk. That woman touches him with her issue of blood and is healed. The prostitute kisses his feet and he's honored. He is the touchable God. He's not some abstract proposition. He is not some theological idea. He is the word of God made flesh. And dwelling among us, he is full of grace and truth. And he is God incarnate walking among us. We are his people. The church is his body. We do him no justice when we put up a sign that says, don't touch me, stay away. I want my space. And strange as it might seem, when we greet one another with a holy kiss or a holy hug, we are reenacting the very heart of the Christian faith. We are touchable people because we serve a touchable God. So a practical challenge to the family of God this morning. It seems to me that at a minimum we need to recapture the dynamic of the early church because even the pagans said, oh, look how they love one another. And why is touching so important? We talk and we talk, but the message doesn't come through. Sometimes the only way to communicate is with a hug, which is the whole point of the holy kiss because it involves physical contact. If you don't touch, it's not kissing, right? Children, teenagers, not children, teenagers. When you hug someone or put your arm around them in a friendly, around their shoulder, or when you greet someone with a holy kiss, you're sending a message that cannot be missed. I care about you. You're not alone. We're in this together. And if we cannot say that in the church, where can we say it? And if we're embarrassed to say it in the church, why are you here in the first place? And if I say this in a very much no, I say this in a COVID world, but I looked up the CDC charts. You know what they say? They say this, if you're wearing nothing and you have COVID and I'm wearing nothing and I don't have COVID, I have to be around you for 15 minutes before I get COVID. I have two charts from the CDC. You're not going to get it from a holy kiss. Besides, you know where the wipes are and the whatever. I'm sure you can. I don't know. But let's, let's deal with it. We need to touch again. And if these days we just substitute technology for personal contact, we're missing the boat. We can email each other. We can send a text to one another. It can help connect us, and it's encouraging. But some of us would rather stay in our jammies for church so that we can't avoid the personal contact. And we exchange electronic greetings with people thousands of miles away, and it's amazing, and it's helpful, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's good to stay in touch with people. But there's nothing like being there in person, face to face, up close. Can television or internet really ever truly take the place of the local church gathered together? 
You cannot give a holy kiss over the internet. How are you going to follow this scripture? Some things only happen in person. So if you're home this morning because you're lazy, I didn't think that would be funny. I was going to say, shame on you. Shame on you. Because we need you as much as you need us. So where do we go from here? I am not advocating for the literal practice of holy kissing. Since it's just kind of uncomfortable for us. But I'm not sure what perfectly parallels what they did in the early church. So maybe we try. In some situations, it's probably very appropriate. In other cases, it's going to make somebody uncomfortable. And you need, I, I get that. We need sensitivity from the Lord to know how best to truly greet one another in the Lord. We need to find ways to express our holy, innocent affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Different people will express it in different ways. But we're not free to ignore this command as if it doesn't apply to us. The early Christians who were hated and often persecuted, they loved each other fervently and they were not afraid to show it. Let me call your attention to one of the most touching passages in the New Testament. Acts 20 tells about Paul's final visit amongst the elders at Ephesus. They knew trouble was ahead and they wouldn't probably see him ever again. He's on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. And so the, he meets the elders out at the island of Miletus. And they know they will not see him again. And then he gives them a charge to be faithful in their flock. And then it's time for him to leave. Acts 20 verse 36 puts it this way. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of them all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him. The King James says they fell on his neck. Here are grown, godly, spiritual men who are overcome with sadness, expressing their love and their concern the only way they knew how. And if we're embarrassed by all of that, that says more about us than it does about them. Let that thought linger. For most of us, our greatest need is to have the courage to do what the scripture tells us to do. To reach out and touch a brother or a sister and just say, I love you. We need more hugs in the body of Christ. More open emotion. More expressions of caring. More daring to tear down walls and get close to each other. I know I need it. You probably do too. Two practical steps. I want to encourage you to do two things. Number one, ask yourself, is there a Christian friend I don't want a holy kiss from? That probably means there's something in the relationship there that you need to deal with. Deal with it. You don't have to kiss each other, but get the relationship settled. And second, take a step toward greeting a brother or sister this week. Do something. Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe you have lunch together. Maybe you open your home or you, you, you write them a letter of surprise or, a, you know, give them a gift. I don't know. Maybe you do a holy kiss. Don't let it become a joke. 
There are lots of ways to apply this command if we're willing. But most of us are just too shallow to obey this command. We're too quick and we're too casual. We're too prone to say hi and look the other way. See, this is really what a home group is all about. I kiss my home group people. I know them. I love them. That's where you build this brother-sister relationship, which makes the holy kiss meaningful. Without meaningful interaction, no wonder so many people can be lonely even if they come to church. No wonder folks come to church looking, hoping, praying, someone, anyone would give them some attention and they leave feeling empty. The encouragement of this text is we don't have to stay that way. We're the children of a touchable God. Jesus entered our world and he touched the untouchable. In the first century, he didn't come to church. Everybody must have got a hug or a kiss. And we need to recapture the view that all true Christians, we belong in one large family. And when we do, the holy kiss will once again become appropriate. And the world will once again say to us, oh, how much they love one another. We need what they had in Rome, family unity in a world divided. And that is not easy. It's not as easy as it sounds, for sure. But when it comes right down to it, we have a simple faith that can be expressed in simple ways. you got this entire book of Romans, and it comes down to the end to just greet one another with a holy kiss. A simple expression of a simple kingdom. I don't know what you're going to do with that this week, but that's what the text says. Let's pray. Father, the church in Rome had its problems. They were relational. Every church has problems, and most all of them are relational. But let us not forget the simplicity of our faith in such a way that we will genuinely greet one another. If it's a hug, a firmer handshake, a holy kiss, Father, let us just express our love for you by how we love one another. Thank you for the simplicity of our faith and of your kingdom. In Jesus' name.